disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. At one point, I think I had a million dollars under my bed. I used to sleep with a gun in my hand under my pillow. It was just, it, it got to the point to where it was in, insanity. There was just so much money, so much cocaine, so much, you know, of everything, excess of everything. That, friends, is the voice of a historical figure, the femme fatale favorite of Miami's most feared kingpins in the violent era of the cocaine cowboys. Here with the story of Mutiny Molly. Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of my friends at Elwood Thompson's, hands down the best market in Virginia. Exceptional breakfast, imported coffees, local beers, Indian Wednesdays, carne asada on Fridays to die for. Visit them in Richmond's Cary Town and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from a secure, undisclosed location, uh, quite possibly in the lower 48, but I'm not sure, is a central character to my upcoming book, in my upcoming book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. Uh, Molly, we'll call her Molly Hampton. How are you today? I am absolutely fabulous. Thanks for talking with me, Robin, and thanks for having me on the show. Well, let me just say thanks for letting me into your life. Uh, let's say a decade or so ago when we were introduced, um, I found out there was a legend about a femme fatale at this infamous Miami hotel and club, <laughs> Mutiny, Mutiny Molly. She was the gorgeous brunette that everybody talks about. She was fearless. She loved fast cars. She knew how to handle weapons. She was confident around the most feared drug kingpins and assassins of Miami. She loved beautiful women. I was like, I have to find this Molly. And uh, you took me in. So God bless you. And we've had an absolute 10-year adventure since, haven't we? Well, you had such an adventure 40 years ago. Um, <laughs> I just want to rewind back. I mean, for the people who I'm excited uh, for people to learn about your life and my book and how it was so unlikely for you to come from the Bible Belt in Central Florida and come to Miami. You were engaged to a man. You didn't realize you were going to discover your other side sexually, as it were, and, and almost on a lark, you took this uh, interview at the mutiny in the late 70s. Tell us about it. Well, uh, I was looking for um, possible employment down in Miami. I wanted to stay there. I didn't want to go back home to Tampa. And I went for an interview, and a gentleman interviewed me. And the funny part was he asked me to take off my shirt. And I was like, ah, why do I need to take off my shirt? I'm not going to be working topless. And he goes, instantly, you're hired. So started working, and it was a whole world I had never, ever, ever seen before, being from a small town in Tampa and living under a rock and sheltered my whole life in the um, Southern Baptist Church. So I want to I want to step back and explain this scene in Miami. Uh, this was at the center of really reefer madness in Miami in the 1970s. Everybody was moving marijuana. There were bales of marijuana that were floating ashore everywhere. They called them square groupers. And the city broadly in America was having its cocaine coming of age. And this club and hotel, uh, 10 miles south, let's say five miles south of downtown Miami, was the most exclusive uh, watering hole in Miami at the time. And that's where you showed up. You heard the tips were great. You heard you, you get to meet fascinating people and try fascinating, expensive wines. And uh, they had all sorts of Playboy casting calls there and the like. Tell us about your first day on the job there. What was it like walking in? 
Well, the first day I was absolutely petrified because um, Mr. Goldberg, Burton, the owner, he um, insisted everyone wear hats. And the girls got all made up and had these amazing outfits on, designer outfits, designer shoes, um, makeup done to the nines with hats. And I just walked in so intimidated and so frightened. And everybody there, every single girl that I met there was just so kind to me and so um, accommodating. They helped me with my makeup. They helped me uh, buy clothes, get dressed. And after a week, I was hooked. I just thought it was absolutely amazing wearing these fabulous clothes, walking around this beautiful, beautiful nightclub, meeting the most amazing people you can imagine that are now legendary figures and some aren't with us anymore. But just so much, so much fun and so much excitement. And just you could just feel the power in the room as you walked around. Weren't you intimidated? Not so much, a little bit because – of more so than the girls than the guys that were there. The guns didn't bother me. I was raised that way. Um, none of that bothered me. The drugs didn't bother me. It was all the beautiful women, I guess, because I'm, you know, when I see a beautiful woman, I, a beautiful woman, I get a little, uh, you know, a little shy. So you explained in the book that you felt like Superman, Superwoman, the first time you took a toot. Um, I guess you were open-minded enough by then you had called off your engagement, uh, to this, to this young man. And did you, did you say, well, I'm at this club and I'm all in? No, actually him, him and I, we had decided uh, to part our ways. Um, I was, uh, he wanted to go up to New York. I wanted to stay in Miami and work at the club and he wanted to move to New York. So he ended up moving to New York. I stayed at the club, kept working and for a long time, I didn't do drugs because that's how it wasn't how I was raised. But after I did that first hit and it went right to my head within 10 minutes, um, I felt like Superman, like I could do anything. I could ch solve all the world's problems. I was just on top of the world, on top of the world. And that's what it is that you hooked into that drug, that the cocaine. Well, who offered it to you? Was it another waitress? Was it, I mean, what was the reputation of cocaine? I cited in the book this 1975 Playboy story uh, about cocaine, this very long treatise by a, an award-winning author on, this is like the champagne of drugs. It was not addictive, supposedly. Your dentist was trying it. Uh, it was high class. If people were doing it in book clubs in New York, it seems like that was the initial reputation of cocaine before things got dangerous. Yes, absolutely. We had silver straws. We had silver spoons. Um, we had little Twizzlers we would wear around our neck made of um, gold for champagne. And it was just a whole nother way of life. But the um, everyone was doing it then. It was just the thing to do. Um, that and the Quaaludes, the Roar 714s. Um, the Roar 714s with Hugh Hefner infamously called thigh spreaders, which is... <laughs> Exactly right. I never uh, that was not my drug of choice because it made me uh, sleepy. I always preferred cocaine because it made me up. It made me high. It made me exciting. It made me um, feel exactly like you said, like Superman. So uh, did, did a co-worker introduce it to you? I mean, did somebody nudge you? you? You were, after all, raised in a conservative environment. You didn't do drugs. Well, everyone would give you $100 bills and grams of cocaine for tips. That's how you, you know, you made money. You had grams of cocaine and $100 bills. 
And one of the girls is like, you should really try it. You should try it. And because I was giving all my cocaine away to all the other girls. And they're like, you should try it. And I was like, oh, my God, I am so incredibly tired. Let me give it a go. So one of the girls said, yeah, go in the bathroom. I'll cover for you. And I went in the bathroom. And I came out. And wow, what a difference 10 mix makes. That's all I can say. What was, did it feel like? Did, did you black out? I, I, I mean, I didn't no. do my requisite research for this book, Molly, and that I didn't try it. <laughs> Everybody asked me, even the editor at Penguin Random House. I said, sorry, I just did it. I never got around <laughs> to it, frankly. <laughs> no, it, it, uh, it makes you, it's like a amphetamine. So it makes you up. It makes you high. It makes your senses clearer. It, it, I don't know if it actually does this, but this is the way it made me feel like I could think more clearly. I could speak more clearly. I could just function. Everything was uh, at a faster pace. You you don't get tired. It's like drinking 50 cups of uh, cortaditos, 50 little shots of cortaditos. Those little, those little <laughs> coffee thimbles in Miami that everybody drinks. It's pretty much – it's 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 why they say we've never really had a uh, – you know, I guess uh, was oh, gosh, it's it's why Red Bull never took off in Miami or whatever else it is, and that these cortaditos were everywhere. But exactly. you, had King, you had Kingpin sitting there in the club in the corner boots. They called them cocaine cowboys. These were gentlemen that would order all sorts of food on the table, uh, bottles of champagne. Um, Ross, Rothschild Lafitte, nineteen fifty nine, nineteen sixty, and. It, it sounded like it was just one giant buffet and anybody could toot what they wanted. Cash was everywhere. Money was no object. Exactly. You would go to someone's table. You would sit down for a few minutes. You would have a glass of champagne or some wine, um, eat. Um, sometimes I used to go before my shift began and I would go upstairs and have dinner and put it on one of the guy's accounts. I would order a bottle of wine. Um, have a filet mignon or a prime rib because Manny was absolutely – our chef was absolutely amazing. And then uh, take a hit, boom, showtime, ready to go. Go downstairs and start my shift. Um, what were you getting paid then? You have to remember your first hourly wage at the mutiny. It wasn't a lot. I mean I, I, I can't even remember. It's been 40 years ago, but it definitely wasn't a lot. I mean you were basically there – for the people, the tips, and the drugs, and the parties, and the excitement, and everything like that. It was just one big party, night after night after night after night. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Mutiny Molly, the unlikely Bible belter turned gun woman turned, uh, you know, doper's favorite girl at the Mutiny. Um, she was one of the guys everybody referred to her as, this legend of this gorgeous brunette, in Miami that I had to find, and I, I scoured the world and 10 years ago found her, and you will read her story and then some in my forthcoming book, Hotel Scarface. Molly, tell me about that first interaction with um, some of the most powerful drug lords in Miami. I mean, surely the other girls must have talked, like, that's the guy whose table you want to cover. Or, that's the guy who you want to look out for. There was always this symbiotic relationship where a hostess would tip off a doper if a cop was coming in or if his ex-wife was coming in. Yes, like some of the girls were um, uh, very um, – everybody had their own favorites. So the girls that I was work, that I were working with at the club, they would say, oh, this is uh, Rudy or this is you know Carlito or this is this and that. And they'd say, well, this one's a generous tipper. This one's fun, blah, blah, blah. But then I became kind of uh, – as much as you can with a hired assassin, I became friends with him. And that would be Ricky. 
and we ended up, um, he ended up living with me and we just ended up in a friendship and I ended up with that group of Rudy Redbeard and um, Colleen Casada and some of the other people. And it just, I was one of the guys to them. It was, I had the best parts of a woman, but I also had the good parts of a guy that I could watch football with them. I could go on deals with them. I could drive for them and I could handle the guns. And it was, they just loved me because I had the best parts of, of both man and, and women. Now let so, me explain for everybody. When you talk about Ricky, this is one of the most notorious characters in a notorious, the most notorious era in Miami history, Ricardo monkey Morales, everybody out there, you should really Google him. And follow his life story. He is he's kind of the <laughs> spirit animal of this book, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. Some people say he was called the monkey because of his 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 you know prosimian appearance. Um, he had a sloped back. He had big ears. He had a very menacing look. Um, others say he was a monkey because he swung from vine to vine. He would at one point be your <laughs> best friend. At another point, he'd be ratting you out to the police. But regardless, this is someone who initially worked for Fidel Castro's secret police. Uh, in the revolution in 1959 and 1960, got disillusioned, came to Miami, fled through the Brazilian embassy, started working for the CIA and uh, became a contract assassin, um, was taking out uh, Fidel Castro loyalists, was raiding the coast of Cuba, attacking sugar refineries. Um, after the Bay of Pigs crisis, the botched invasion of Cuba, he agreed to get sent to the Belgian Congo um, in, you know, the in Africa to fight a proxy war. He came back super disillusioned. And when Vietnam took center stage and under President uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, we weren't paying that much attention to Cuba anymore. He turned his skill set to becoming a bomber, a doper, a drug runner, a, a prolific informant, a kind of a man of all seasons. I mean, this is maybe the most bizarre resume you'll find in the history of Miami. But to me, he was just Ricky, and he was uh, a nice guy. I was never, ever really scared of these guys. Um, I respected them for what they did, but um, there was a, also a gentleman there that kind of became like my godfather that watched over me and made sure that I never got hurt or made sure that nobody would take advantage of me, and uh, his name was Bernie Bernardo. So what was it? I mean, how did these guys meet you? Like, what would they do? They'd send you a bottle or they'd say, who is that? Who is that girl you're always talking to? I would be I'm sure the other girls would be talking about that guy is a notorious bomber or he's shot several people. He this guy was infamous. Ricky Morales, for example, emptied 17 rounds into another Cuban exile in 1967. Somebody tried to blow up his car in 1971. Um, you know, he was he was a hitman in Venezuela. He was a, a, a busted dealer in Miami. I would be terrified if I was in your shoes. The only time I was ever terrified is when I went out on one of the cigarette boats and we were flying and uh, off of Key Biscayne one day and everybody was so high and we'd been up all night and we're like, let's take out the boat. And next thing I know, we're flying across the water. And that was the only time I was actually scared for my life. <laughs> but that was a lot of fun. I met some very, very interesting people and that circle also. That was Willie and uh, some of the other guys. Willie Falcone, you're saying? Mm-hmm. Wow. Willie Falcone, for everybody, was probably the biggest cocaine dealer in Miami history. He just got out of prison uh, a few days ago, and the United States is threatening to have him deported to Cuba. 
Uh, what I love about my story, and, and, and it's a story that kind of never ends. I mean, these old ghosts of cocaine Miami are still haunting the city. Um, you could say, you know, 35, 37 years after you worked at this hotel, Molly. Absolutely. Um, I went back, uh, as I was telling you before, I went back and we went to the hotel. And as soon as I walked in, I felt a familiar smell to me that reminded me of the old days 40 years ago and it just kind of threw me for a loop and then to you know see the renovations of what they've done to the hotel and this and that but i just have to say that there definitely are ghosts there definitely this hotel is in the heart of coconut grove florida it's the mutiny at sailboat bay was its old name it's now the mutiny hotel in coconut grove uh in a past life uh before it was abandoned for a decade and gutted in the late 90s it was the den of iniquity in Miami. And at what point, Molly, did you realize that you are kind of in a otherworldly situation? I imagine after a few months, you realize this is no kind of garden variety hostessing job. I'd never experienced anything before in my life, and I will never experience anything else since because it was one of a kind such a, a unique and, and complex place, but it was just so much fun and just the action going on. And it was just a whole nother era of just excitement. And, and it was like Studio 54 on steroids. We do know that in 1980, there was a twin shock in Miami. There were horrible race riots in the spring. And also Fidel Castro allowed 120,000 refugees, I mean, pretty much let them surge into the Florida Keys and come up into Miami. Maybe upward of 15,000 of them were criminals, many of them violent criminals. And this was a new reality you're dealing with. Um, I remember you telling me the story in the book, which I, I just can't get my head around, of these awful race riots going on in Miami, Miami kind of burning down. And you took to the roof with another member and, and people just got high and started shooting machine guns? Yes. Um, actually, um, one of the gentlemen had given me his Beretta and I was up on the roof and there was probably about seven or eight of us up on the roof. Um, and we were there to protect the mutiny and in case they tried to break in because they were coming around and they were throwing bottles and they were trying to break in anywhere they could. So we were um, sent up there by the manager to protect our mutiny. And so some guys had machine guns, um, Uzis, and I had a Beretta handgun with probably about six or seven clips ready to go. And we stayed up there until the sun came up. And uh, with the Cubans uh, coming into the Margarito boat lifts, there was a lot of members and a lot of my friends that I developed relationships to that had family members coming over. So we went down to the Keys to see it, to see them and to get some of their family members. And I saw firsthand uh, the prisoners in their prison garb still that Castro was bringing over and letting off of the boats. And it was um, ecstatic to see a family member, but it was incredibly sad to see these people um, getting off with no – you know, nowhere to go, no place, no family members, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And, and that's how things got uh, a little crazy down in Miami. The, the crime just escalated. And that's when uh, that's when it, things at the mutiny started to go down because uh, they didn't have any respect for for life. And they would just come and shoot anybody at any time. It just didn't matter because they were so coked up. One of the homicide detectives we spoke to said that the running nickname for a lot of these assassins who came in on the Mariel boat lift was Dixie Cups. 
Um, they didn't care if you threw them in jail. They would get three square meals there, which beat the heck out of whatever penitentiary they were in in, in Castro's Cuba. Um, they'd take contract hits. They would uh, even dare to rip off uh, established Cuban kingpins and risk life. Uh, or limb and doing that. And a lot of people started getting shot up and killed. And the Marielle on Marielle homicide rate into the late 1980 and especially into 1981 was so bad. Uh, there's this infamous story of the, the Dade County coroner medical examiner's office having to lease a refrigerated truck from Burger King Corporation, which was based right there. Um, I want to get a sense for how this violence and how this, um, this ominous spirit started coming into the hotel and club. Well, I think uh, some of them had family members that would come in and they would have friends that would, they would bring in. And those guys just had no respect for anything. And it would just get so out of control. First it would be fights and then people would be pulling guns out on each other. And, and then it just got to the point to where, um, you just – it wasn't the place to be anymore. It was it was becoming a very, very dangerous place to be, and that's when I decided I had to get out. Well, the turning point really for a lot of people at the hotel was – I hate to bring it up. It was the spring 1982 uh, – spring 1981 murder of Margarita Eilenberg, who was a beloved uh, Dominican-born mutiny waitress. Um, there are pictures of you playing with her on the softball team. She was a model for the Burdines catalog, the famous department store in Florida. And she had big aspirations, according to the person who trained her at the mutiny. She thought she could take this job to meet uh, casting agents for movies and catalog people and modeling agents. And instead, she fell into the hands of, uh, of a serial killer. Um, tell us what you recount from that experience. Um, Margarita was such a lovely soul, such a beautiful person, and um, it was just a terrible tragedy what had happened with her. But she got mixed up with the wrong people. Um, this guy had such a good um, rap. I mean, he was he could have sold you anything, and he talked her into going here and going out. And we were we were all skeptical because we had kind of an intuition that he wasn't such a good guy. And then, um, you know, nobody knew what happened until they found her. And then when they found her, you know the story that she was in uh, the blanket that's from my my uh, hotel room. Yeah, well, they found her in a mutiny blanket, and um, they found her injected in the jugular with cocaine. Her body was dumped in the Florida Keys, and this was the serial killer, M Miguel Miranda. I think it was his 14th and final victim, and mm -hmm. a DEA sharpshooter then went after him, took the law into his own hands. But as I understand, it put a complete chill on everything else in the hotel. At that point, that's when pretty much everybody in the book told me that it became immediately a life or death scenario. You couldn't just snort and drink and forget about it. It's all fine. Well, yeah, it brought you back down to reality that, you know, it used to be all fun and games. Now it's not fun and games anymore. Now, uh, now it's come down to uh, not such a good place to be and not so safe anymore and when that happens it makes you uh, realize what's going on and and it, that's why i told you i had to i had to leave i had to get out and that's when i left at that point well the one thing i want to step back and talk about is this mix of the sheer amount of money that was pouring into south florida i mean you could compare this to a gold rush environment like san francisco in 1949 mm -hmm. or the the bay area in 1999 and 
you know, oil uh, at some points of Oklahoma or Pennsylvania. Um, that kind of money mixed with power, mixed with sex and the high that, that everybody seemed to get on cocaine. I speak to other people. You know, one doper told me that you, you did cocaine and you feel like you could solve all the world's problems in one night. The problem is nobody would wake up the next day to do the solving. <laughs> That's, so, that was the problem. <laughs> there was a lot of manic sex. There was a lot of kind of empire building, like in the Tony Montana way. I want to defend my territory. I want to get these kilos. I mean, after all, you could, you could get a kilo wholesale uh, from Colombia for a few thousand dollars, and after you've cut it and sold it on the street, it was selling for upwards of forty or fifty thousand dollars. That was a ridiculous margin. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it just it everything just exploded. I mean, that we were we would spend so many nights just um, suitcases and suitcases full of money, and just counting it. And we didn't have <coughs> some of us didn't have the um, money counters so physically we would have to sit there out of our brains coked out drunk from drinking all night long trying to count money and just it was absolutely amazing at one point i think i had a million dollars under my bed i used to sleep with a gun in my hand under my pillow it was just it, it got to the point to where it was in, insanity it was just so much money so much cocaine so much you know of everything excess of everything until Margarita um, got killed. And then after that, it was kind of a wake-up call to everybody to, like, people, we need to uh, kind of wake up and see what's going on here. This isn't uh, all fun games anymore. You talk about waking up. Somebody that was up all night with you was the guy you generously let crash uh, in your living room, in your apartment with your roommate, who was also a, a mutiny waitress. Um, we go back to Ricardo Monkey Morales, and you talk about shadow and persona. Everything you read about this guy was macho, macho, macho. He wasn't afraid of the Colombians coming to Miami. He was rumored to have uh, strangled a Colombian in northern Florida in front of other people. He wasn't afraid of, of uh, you know, security at the mutiny. There's a story that they told me that he carried a gag hand grenade on his belt, that he almost killed a person in the lobby. He wasn't afraid of getting shot. But when he'd crash on your couch, he'd open up to you, as you told me, you, what you saw in the evenings was not an assassin, not a mercenary, but a scared little boy. Tell me about that. He was he was like a scared little boy, and this is the part that no one ever saw of him, and that's why um, he, I guess, gravitated toward me because I had compassion for him and his his plight because he couldn't be himself around anybody else because he was a big badass and he, you know, he could never let anybody see him cry. He could never let anyone see him have any sort of vulnerability whatsoever. So when we would, you know, crash or we'd be, you know, coming down or whatever, getting ready to go to bed and we used to sit and he would tell me stories and when he was younger and this and that. And I would see such a soft, sensitive side of him that no one ever, ever got to experience before. And uh, that's, I guess that's why him and I became friends and why I invited him into my home when he had nowhere else to go. Why, what motivated him at that point? I mean, I guess if he's scared for his life, the, the easy answer would be just go ahead, go quit the life. You have a bounty for your head in Miami, in Caracas, in Cuba, just quit, go into witness protection. I mean, what was motivating him? And in his diaries, in his, um, some of his informant logs that I got, uh, from a prosecutor, he said, I don't play to win or lose. I play to stay in the game. Exactly. But he would never quit. 
but to what end? I mean, uh, some people are motivated by power. In this, you get the you get the money, you get the power, you get the women was what Tony Montana said. Others were really motivated by cash. For some people, there was bloodlust, like Margarita's murderer. I mean, this is a person who would sacrifice animals in his backyard and killed people just for for the fun of it. Um, I can't understand, and it still remains unresolved for me. This lost spy, this this man that was really at the nexus of the cocaine war and the Cold War, what his motivation was. I think that he wanted to quit and he he probably wanted to get out, but he I, I think that he felt he couldn't. That's the way I feel. He felt like he was stuck in that life and and he had no other choice. And he didn't want to I think that he if he thought that he was gonna be um if he could get out and get witness protection and this and that, he would be seen as a softy or a loser or something like that. And he, he never wanted to go out that way. He wanted to go out as a badass. And he did. So He ultimately I, got shot and killed around Christmas of nineteen eighty two in an argument at a bar in Key Biscayne. Nobody believed that this guy who had nine lives, who cheated death so many times would get into an argument. A lot of people in Miami still insist that it was a hit, that it was prearranged. Uh, this this was, you know, fast forward, you'll read about it in the book, but he testified against a lot of his best friends at the mutiny, the very people that he sat with. He turned to the police in late 1980 and said that you guys have uh, heroin dealers on your hand, which was really concocted. He made up this whole scheme, and at the same time, he was telling the press that he was lying about it. Um, so it was this this kind of this suicide mission at the very end. I, I, I think it was a hit also. I don't think it was just random. I think that um, someone had definitely put a hit on him. But um, like I said, I, I think he went out on his terms, and um, I just felt that he couldn't he couldn't quit. And that uh, uh, ultimately led to his death, and um, I would always miss him. I still have some things in my possession that he had given me. Well, I, what I, you know, what's really haunting to me is that when you would finally beg for him to leave, whatever it was, three or four in the morning, get some sleep or listen, I got to go crash, Ricky, I got to get up for work the next day. He'd always ask you the same question. Why am I still alive? Exactly. Exactly. Why am I still alive? Why do you think I'm still alive? And I never had an answer for him. I just said, sometimes I'd say, because people are scared of you. And we would laugh and then he'd just kind of look at me and sometimes he'd hang his head. And it was a very, very um, complex relationship that we had, him and I. But um, I really cared for him. I really, really did. And um, I missed him when he was gone. But uh, he went out on his own terms, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that that's how it kind of happened. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Mutiny Molly, one of the central characters of my forthcoming book. It hits in October. It's called Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. I've spent 20 years on it. It's like the mother of all <laughs> kids. I don't want to offend uh, you know, other mothers by saying it was like childbirth. I don't pretend to know what childbirth is, but I'd like to say that maybe it was like passing an eight-pound kidney stone this book. <laughs> the hardest thing by far I've ever written, um, even if it bombs. I'm so glad that I've got to meet people like you and that you've gotten to share your stories with me. I mean, you know, um, I do keep some modicum of anonymity for you right now. You've completely entered into a different life, and I want to get into that conversation in the few minutes we have left. But, um, Molly, you took a turn. Uh, there was a turning point for you where you said to me in the book that you called your mom 
in Tampa. And you said you can't do this anymore. What was it? What, what, what was it? Was it a signal from God? There was a cop that intervened apparently that took you under his wing. Tell me how you got yourself extricated from this after the Margarita murder and, and Ricky Morales getting killed. Well, um, everything was coming to a head at this point, and I was out on the um, I was out on the yacht with Rudy, and we were smoking free base, and sun was coming up, and I was just. I, I don't know. I saw the sun coming up, and I just said, "I can't do this anymore." So explain so called, to me, Freebase. Freebase is the is the the ashen distillate. It was it was like the forerunner to crack. Correct. Um. So and Rudy, little... right? Rudy Redbeard was the forefather, the grandfather of of uh, Freebase. He had this massive yacht, Graciela. People could play him video games. He'd be affable at one moment, and he'd be terrifying at the other moment. Yeah, you never know if you were going to go overboard or not. So, I mean, up all night smoking this, and I just saw the sun come up. I called my mother, and my mother's like, just come home. Come home to Tampa. Just come home. So in the meantime, I was living in Coconut Grove, and someone broke into my apartment. And the officer, the city of Miami policeman that uh, came to, for, to you know, make the police report, he, him and I became friends. I ran into him about six months later somewhere. And then we just started talking, hanging out, and he's somehow we just he took a liking to me, and he's like, "You have to get out of this life." He goes, "I can see that this isn't you, and and that you were raised differently, and you know you have the Christian background and this and that." So he got me um, out of the life. He took me, and he got me, um, helped me get an apartment. Uh, I left the mutiny, started working at a um, nightclub down in Coral Gables where I was managing, and uh, I stayed there until I eventually ended up moving to New York. Well, I want to understand. I mean, was he trying to hit on you? Why oh, did God, you? Yes, <laughs> he was trying to hit on you. So this is were you were you uh, were you? I mean, of course, I got into all aspects of your life, but you were were you were switch hitting? Was that okay at that point? Were you okay? With an overture like that, or were you like, uh, "I'm sorry, officer, I'm I'm in the female camp now"? Yeah, well, I'm I'm still I'm still switch hitting, but um, he was really sweet and kind, and uh, once in a while we would, you know, have sex, but mostly it was uh, just a really uh, a friendship. He was a uh, a little bit older than I was, so he was kind of like a father figure to me. But um, he was so sweet, so kind, and he really, really helped me uh, straighten my life out and get my life back on track. How after, did you confide you know, to him? I mean, you were really using heavily at this point? Were you drinking heavily? I mean, at this point, after the epiphany on the yacht and calling your mom and she said, come back. And I also understand that your mom was ill. Yes, my mom um, had uh, cervical cancer. So um, it was a turning point in my life, and I, I – I took the opportunity to let this gentleman help me get myself sober, get myself straight, um, stopped all the cocaine, just cold turkey, and I couldn't stop drinking, though. The drinking, because I couldn't sleep now. I was having serious problems sleeping because you would party all night, you would drink all night, and then you would pass out, and that wasn't happening anymore, so... It took me a year to straighten out my system to get back to where I could fall asleep again. And uh, the night sweats and just the coming down, uh, the withdrawals from the cocaine, um, it was an absolute nightmare. My gums were bleeding. I couldn't eat anything hard like steak or anything. Uh, But he helped me, and I got back on track. And then um, 
I went up to Tampa for about a year. My mom was really sick at this point, and that's when I was totally done with everything. Um, I stayed after she passed and uh, took care of some family members at uh, family matters at the house. And then I uh, decided to go back down to Miami because I just, I loved everything about Miami. It's just a beautiful city. So I went back down to Miami, started working a job um, down there that eventually led me to an opportunity here in New York. So what I want to understand is, so all of this, all of this stuff about cocaine being not addictive, that it's a high class drug, you found that it was almost the secondary effects of it, that you, you needed something to bring you down essentially made it addictive, that even if you went cold turkey off the cocaine, even if you endured uh, the, the, the bleeding gums because of the swollen gums and having to get your gums excised and not being able to eat hard food, even if you endured the busted septum, you still had to lean on something else. Others would use downers. You would use alcohol to try to get to sleep at night. And, and that kind of tug of war you in both ways. Exactly. It was the alcohol that... Um... It was just it started getting excessive. And so I don't know, maybe perhaps just with God's help, I don't know, but I just slowed down on the alcohol, slowed down on everything. No no weed at all, no cocaine at all, slowed down on the drinking, let my system get back to normal, and here I am. <laughs> And here you are, God. <laughs> and you've said that several times. You play, do you play trumpet for your church, your church choir? I understand. I play trumpet. I play guitar. I do the audio. I sing in the choir. Um, I'm very involved in the church. I went on a actually a mission trip to Cuba with my church, um, and you know, there but for the grace of God is I'm alive and I'm healthy, and He got me through what I had to go through, but it was, if I, when I look back, I have to say that it was definitely the most exciting time of my life, the scariest time of my life. And it was just such a learning experience and something that I could never, ever, you could never, ever duplicate that. Like you can never duplicate a studio 54. You'll never duplicate a mutiny at Selbo Bay. It was just such, such an experience. It was a life changing experience. And I'm so happy to be alive and for all of us that did get out of alive, I mean, it was uh, because there's a lot of us that didn't get out of li alive. You know, a lot of a lot of the guys passed. Some of the girls died, and uh, you know, the ones that are still here, we we stay in touch, and and it's just nice to see everyone again and just have those fond memories and those laughs. Mutiny, Molly, femme fatale, gun woman, Bible clutching. Gorgeous goddess, <laughs> mutiny hostess. I mean, you know, car aficionado. What which kind of hat didn't you wear? Indeed, you wore many hats at the mutiny uh, 37 plus years ago. I am so grateful that not only did you agree to come on my humble little podcast, but you are a central character in my forthcoming book, Plug, 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 Hotel Yay. Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. You can go to hotelscarface.com. You can go to facebook.com slash Hotel Scarface. You can pre-order it on Amazon, on PenguinRandomHouse.com. Just Google the book Hotel Scarface by Robin Farzad. And I can't wait, uh, Molly, to see you at the Miami Book Fair. I'm so grateful. And this is a lot of PDA, but I love giving PDA on this show. That even if this book goes nowhere, I would have met someone beautiful like you. And for me, what journalism is all about is um, empathy. And uh, meeting people and looking at the whites of their eyes and putting yourself in their shoes and vice versa. And 
you opened up to me in a way that that many sources I just just can't remember in my 17 years of being a writer, and I am just broadly grateful for you, Molly. Well, thank you. My family loves you. I love you. It's a pleasure meeting you. And this book is going to be a huge success as well as the movie following. Oh, from your <laughs> lips to God's ears. I love that you're a frequent churchgoer and you play all those instruments for the good Lord to hear us. Full disclosure, catch us on NPR One where you should like us and love us on iTunes at FullDRadio.com, on Twitter at FullDRadio, on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. <laughs> <laughs>